Picture this, you've just gone into your mall of choice on a typical day. You're eating in the food court because your favorite shop just refilled the dessert you grab weekly. As you take a bite, you notice a distinct vibration disturbing the air. Others around you have complained for a moment and then there is peace. That is of course, until you hear a loud cracking sound, almost like gunfire. The vibration is turned into tremors like an earthquake. In a panic, you rush to leave knowing every second counts. Not too long ago, a small community in South Korea lived through this horrific scenario when the Sampung department store collapsed. But this wasn't the first of these tragedies. They have been living through these scenarios for almost half a century. Hello everyone and welcome to The Corporate Casket. I'm the Illuminati and today we're going to be taking a look at an issue spanning a number of decades through numerous companies in South Korea. Unfortunately, there's a very real possibility that I will mispronounce a number of names or places in this episode despite trying my darndest. If that's the case, I apologize in advance. I am trying. It is not my native language and I'm pretty sure that's going to be fairly obvious, but thank you for being patient with me. Now, for a little bit of background, after the Korean War ended in 1953, South Korea enjoyed an unprecedented period of remunerative success. With a powerful presence in technology, automobile, communication, steel, and chemical industries, this small country cemented its spot in global trade. Naturally, that called for more buildings and rapid urbanization. The construction industry was under high demand, having to raise large-scale buildings with unreasonably short deadlines. It's here where we find the source of a problem plaguing this growing community. Greed and negligence cost the lives of people who quite literally watch their world crumble around them. Before we talk about South Korean construction, we have to give some context to today's conversation. There is a wide reaching stereotype on Eastern Asian cultures that people working in the region are overworked and overstressed. Particularly, these viewpoints are attributed to China, Japan, both Korean nations, Singapore, and Taiwan. But is there truth to this? Absolutely. Statistics from Kesey's Work-Life Balance Index recorded the top 10 overworked cities in 2021. After surveying cities nationwide, Eastern Asian cities comprised of five of the six top overworked cities and six of the top 10. In fact, Yoon suk Yeol, South Korea's recent president-elect, criticized his predecessor for trying to put an end to chronic overwork. He was quoted as saying, workers should be allowed to work 120 hours a week and then take a good rest. Let's take out our calculators real quick here. So 120 divided by 24 hours in a day is five. Their newest president suggested it would be allowed for people to work five days straight with no sleep before taking a good rest, which is a subjective definition. If you were to get a good night's rest of about eight hours, you would still be working 16 to 17 hours per day. It has to be understood that this episode is being presented in a strictly Western mindset. I understand that cultural perspectives are vastly different and many of my Eastern viewers may see no issue with their local work life. That being said, I still don't think this is really okay. There's no way I would ever condone people genuinely working themselves into an early grave, but this isn't a new phenomenon. It seems like this excessive work atmosphere has plagued Eastern nations for as long as they've existed. Past hierarchy systems in these countries play a large cultural role in the hierarchies developed in modern times, prompting relentless demands. A new generation has attacked this issue head on with South Korea's citizens' disapproval of Yoon's stance. Peninsula of Korea, mountainous and forbidding, lies beneath a blanket of clouds as dirty weather hampers efforts of US. We can't properly examine the fallouts of South Korea's success without first taking you to the country's lowest point, the Korean War. Now, when we think of wars, especially ones the United States has participated in, this war receives less publicity. This war began in 1950 when North Korea invaded the 38th parallel, now the line drawn between the two nations. 
The conflict was thought to put the ideals of Western culture against communism. The United States and China became involved and Russia watched closely. Keep in mind that this war happened during a tense militarization period that we call the Cold War. The threat of World War III remained a legitimate possibility at this time. Now, while I'm not going to go into all of the details of this military conflict, it is important to note that this war was gruesome, particularly to Koreans. a e Television Network recorded the Korean War was relatively short, but exceptionally bloody. Nearly 5 million people died. More than half of these, about 10% of Korea's pre-war population were civilians. Both nations were left shattered in the remnants of destructive combat. So how was South Korea able to bounce back? Well, it wasn't easy. For one, a thriving education system set a firm foundation for their citizens. Even before the war, South Korea experienced an educational boom and it endured even as conflict raged on. Cited by Michael J. Seth in Education Fever, Society, Politics, and the Pursuit of Schooling, between 1945 and 1960, primary school enrollment grew by three times, secondary schooling eight times, and higher education 10 times. By 1960, primary schooling was nearly universal for boys and girls, and the dropout rate was minimal. South Korea had the lowest dropout rate of any poor country with reliable statistics. But an advanced learning system wasn't enough. Until about the mid-1950s, South Korea was still under what we consider colonial rule. Ri, the first president of South Korea, acted like a dictator, but lacked true political leadership. He sat from 1948 to 1960 and embodied the typical idea of a corrupt politician. Bribes, strong-arming citizens, electoral manipulation, he did it all. He was overthrown and exiled in 1960, but before he was ousted, he created an economic development council, the best thing he did in his 12 years of serving, er, ruling South Korea. It was none other than the talent and drive of their new generation, enabled by United States technical training that empowered the community to grow. Even though the aforementioned re-regime, the traditional hierarchy system was still in place and most of the community consisted of farmers and peasants. A 1949 land reform law changed all of that, limiting the amount of land aristocrats owned and affording the same peasant farmers entrepreneurial opportunities. It wasn't enacted until after the Korean War, but the policy primed the country for dramatic change. Asianstudies.org tells us that business conglomerates like Jaebul developed shortly after. These Jaebuls played a pivotal role in the country's rebuilding and eventually some of them became the owners of massive international companies. And let me know if any of these names are familiar to you. The Lucky Chemical Company, later to become LG, Hyundai, and Samsung. If you take a drive through a normal American city, there's a chance that you'll see the impact of these companies. Considering that they got started in the 50s, many received financial benefits from President Rhee, like government kickbacks and special access to imports. When Rhee was ousted, Park Chung-hee came into power. He publicly announced that his regime would eradicate the corruption caused by the previous administration. He went after the business families under the thought that as beneficiaries of Rhee's corrupted actions, they were also guilty of corruption. Reading through Chung-hee's actions give me the impression that he was an ambitious man, but he realized that he needed the help of these businesses to turn the country around. So instead of rich families being jailed, they became essential to growth. The government provided the blueprint for economic growth and they used their ideas to make it happen. All in all, Chung-hee's transition can be labeled as a success. And don't be mistaken, for a country that was just hit with a crippling war, this was a miraculous result. But the byproduct gave way to some of South Korea's issues with ethical building. Sadly, the tragedy and bloodshed did not end after the war, it simply took a new form. As South Korea moved to urbanization, the construction industry grew at a blistering pace. In the 1970s, South Korea entered the Middle East as a relatively new competitor in its construction market. Suyong Kim writes in the World Bank Economic Review that in the span of seven years, this little country became the second largest import of construction for the region, 
92% of construction contracts were out of South Korea. So how did an area experience rapid growth and build buildings with no builders? Well, they hired in-house by utilizing smaller local construction companies to work on the buildings. In 1968, the Citizens Apartment Construction Plan was born. From 1969 to 1971, South Korea construction companies were supposed to build a total of 2000 buildings, 400 buildings in 69, 800 in 1970 and 71 respectively. That's a lot of building and a lot of pressure. The short timeline and a competitive market prompted builders to cut corners and omit important details. This method immediately garnered poor results, starting with WOW Apartment Complex. On April 8th, 1970, only four months after its completion, a WOW apartment building collapsed due to poor construction materials. Namsang So recalls being part of the structural investigation team following its collapse, and they said, I was a member of the structural investigation team looking into the cause of the accident in which the building was squashed flat, killing 34 and injuring more than 40 residents. We discovered the stunningly poor quality of the structure. Some columns were reinforced far less than the design requirement, and there had been no quality control over the concrete operation. The compression tests made on the specimens registered less than a quarter of the structural requirements. That's all we had, a foreman of the contractor shouted back when we questioned him. He meant that the majority of the money needed in the field had leaked away before it reached the site. Simply put, there was no oversight to the building and the funding for the building was used before the foreman even got the materials. Surely, greed and corruption are always present and never ending. Sang So posits that the majority of building failures come from sources that could have been prevented. According to the dark side of Seoul, prospective tenants were involved in building the interiors like installing stairs and handrails, not insignificant contributions nor the safest of practices. Now, the apartment building was only half filled, so the death toll of WOW could have been much higher, but that still does not excuse the loss of 34 lives due to poor construction and cutting corners. The people of Seoul, South Korea had the reaction you'd pretty much expect. They looked at the crumbled remains of the WOW apartments, then looked at the identical buildings being raised one after another and showed some trepidation. People were not eager to run inside a building that could fall apart at any moment, but it didn't stop them from being developed. And eventually people continued going into those buildings rife with cut corners and duplicit business practices. When I took a look at other building disasters in the 1970s, I didn't see more during this time period. The majority of deaths that we covered were during the 90s. So even if we assumed that all the buildings were built in 1965, which they weren't, 25 to 30 years is still considered a pathetically short lifespan for a building by modern standards. Shingobi, a nationally acclaimed commercial construction and development company, posits the lifespan of a commercial building on average ranges from 50 to 60 years and can go further depending on the preservation techniques employed by the owner and the way the building is utilized. This isn't even taking into account that there are a number of temples centuries old that have remained in prime condition. It's not like this community is incompetent in construction. That being said, a number of structure-related tragedies rocked the South Korean community. Between 1993 and 1995, a number of devastating events occurred. In January of 1993, the Wu Am Arcade building in Cheongju collapsed, killing 28 people. Not many details were found, but I can't imagine this tragedy and the ones that followed were coincidental. In March, 1993, the Gupo Ga train derailed in the Kupa station of Pusan. 78 people perished from that tragedy. Faulty construction near the train tracks were blamed for the train's derailment, but there were no known charges brought. This is yet another account of lackluster practices. On October 10th, 1993, the ferry Shohei sank in the Yellow Sea near Wido. The maximum capacity of the ship was 221, but there were 362 people on the ship at the time of the sinking. 292 people died from the ferry's accident. 
Now, this has more to do with egregious overloading rather than construction, but it falls under the same theme, cutting corners and breaking rules coming at a ghastly cost. I would say that shortcuts in building and shortcuts in operating a structure are comparable. In October, 1994, the Songsu Bridge collapsed in Seoul, killing 32 people. An investigation was made and it was concluded that the cause was bad welding that didn't hold up under the assumed 15-ton semi-trucks, let alone the 40-ton trucks that traveled. South Koreans protested and an investigation of a number of highways and bridges resulted. Around the same time, a gas line exploded in Mapo, also in Seoul, and a casualty number of 13 that died there. Just six months later in Daegu, another large South Korean city, they experienced their own gas explosion, this time taking the lives of over 100 victims. And the amount of emotional and financial trauma of those two years must've been staggering. When writing Risk and Public Policy in Eastern Asia, Mutsoka Takahashi attributed every single one of the architectural events to human error, corruption, or carelessness. He also claimed it to be a byproduct of accelerated modernization. There aren't many examples that compare to South Korea in terms of such a short-term transformation and current studies about modernization revolve around technology and digital activity. So we don't have another country that compares. To a degree, some of the blame is placed on the community. First, people were not mindful of the risks they were taking. They preferred risk to safety because safety was costly. Risk-taking was dangerous, but it often maximized short-term profit. As a result of their experience of turbulent social change, Koreans brought quick gratifications. Today's dollar is more precious than tomorrow's $2. Koreans, and by that I generally mean South Koreans, have not spent much time in a position of stability. To a degree, it can be understood that a community was more willing to live for today instead of plan for tomorrow. That sentiment came back to bite them repeatedly, but it shone very brightly in June 1995 when the Sampung department store collapsed. The events surrounding the Sampung department store began during the 1988 Olympic games. Building around the Seoul capital area was especially fruitful, even by South Korean standards but a ban on international contracts put business in the hands of local construction companies only. This is understandable because countries want to put their best on display when hosting a major event and the idea of bringing in international help is counterintuitive. As we've already discussed, this area tended to build quickly and cut corners. Starting in 1987, the Sampung Group began building over land that was previously a landfill, not exactly a stable foundation. And originally, and interestingly enough, the Sampung Mall was actually supposed to be an apartment complex and the Sampung Group initially hired Wusung Construction for the build. In the early parts of the construction, the plans were actually changed by the company's future chairman, Lee Jun, to become the department store. But it wouldn't be a simple transition. In a retrospective article called Learning from Seoul's Sampung Department Store Disaster, Colin Marshall recalls the transition. The original plan called for a large four-story apartment complex. After work had already begun, owner Lee Jun, in the first of many ill-considered decisions, switched the project from a residential one to a commercial one a conversion which necessitated the removal of support columns to make room for escalators. When the contractors balked at this, Lee exchanged them for a more obedient in-house crew. Not lost in the account is the fact that switching the location from residential to commercial went against zoning regulations. They got around that by putting a skating rink on the fifth floor and how that got them past zoning regulations, I'm not quite certain, but it could be because a number of politicians were paid off, but more on that later on. Now, the idea of a skating rink became a full food court with hot water pipes underneath. And all of this placed a heavier burden on the columns of the building, which if you remember, were not very sturdy to begin with. 
The removal of additional support columns was a pivotal point in the building's lifespan, but it was obvious Lee Jun didn't care. The completed building was a flat slab construction without cross beams or a steel skeleton, which effectively meant that there was no way to transfer the load across the floors. To maximize the floor space, Lee Jun ordered the floor columns to be reduced to 60 centimeters, 24 inches thick, instead of the minimum 80 centimeters, 31 inches in the original blueprint that was required for the building to stand safely. And the columns were spaced 11 meters or 36 feet apart to maximize retail space, a decision that meant there was more load on each column than there would have been if the columns were closer together. The fifth story restaurant floor had a heated concrete base referred to as Ondal, which has hot water pipes going through it. The presence of 1.2 meter thick four foot on doll greatly increased the weight and thickness of the slab. Further to this, the store's three 15 ton air conditioning units were installed on the roof, creating a 45 ton load that was four times the design limit alone, while the air conditioning was also exceedingly loud and led to noise complaints by customers. It was possible for the Sampoon group to get away with all of this and for the building to actually stay standing. If they hadn't installed the air conditioners on top of the building, it's possible that the support columns would have never been damaged as quickly. Marshall again depicts the breaking point of the young store. When tenants of neighboring buildings to the east complained about the noise it made, management moved the three units to the west, not by lifting them with cranes, but by dragging them. Their combined 45 ton weight, four times the building was designed to handle all the way across the roof. This opened up cracks that widened each and every morning the air conditioners clicked on and vibrated to life over the next two years. The store opened on July 7th, 1990 and averaged 40,000 visitors daily over its tenure. One question comes to mind regarding the air conditioners and the time of their relocation. It was 1993, the same period where all the catastrophic failures were happening. Did it not occur to the Sampoon group that their building was just as liable as the other structures of collapse? The writing was literally on the walls and the columns. I think about that time and wonder what the workers thought as they watched the cracks expand a little bit more every single day. On June 29th, 1995, the columns cracks widened enough to worry the people in the store. When finding out about it, an emergency meeting was called. Lee Jun was notified that the collapse of the store would happen. Directors recommended that the store be evacuated, but Lee Jun firmly kept the store open. He said he didn't wanna lose the money that he put into this. So it was an unusually profitable day after all, right? Now, all the executives were safely escorted out, including Jun's son and CEO, Lee Han Sang. Of course, they didn't want to be stuck in a dangerous situation, but they did not extend that courtesy to everyone else, including June's daughter-in-law. Five hours before the collapse, customers complained about loud bangs from the top floor and vibration from the air conditioning. All Sampung did was turn off the air conditioning, but by then it was already too late. At 5 p.m. Korean standard time, the fifth floor ceiling began to sink. Up until this point, not even the fifth floor was closed, despite inspectors coming in earlier and reporting the imminent danger. The store made cracking sounds at around 5.52 p.m. and workers finally sounded the alarm and prepared evacuation. Unfortunately, they did not get out in time. The roof collapsed and the 45 ton air conditioning units crashed through the crumbling top level. The main columns also went down. The building's south end followed shortly after. Sampung took three years to build and it took all of three minutes to fall, killing 502 and trapping more than 1,500 inside. Lee Jun's desire to keep today's money ended up costing the equivalent of $364 million by today's standards and multiple lives. This incident still stands as the largest peacetime tragedy in South Korean history, and it came with a lot of controversy. Because at first, there wasn't even going to be a rescue at all. Seoul's mayor initially called off the effort, citing concerns about what heavy machinery would do to the rest of the structures. 
His decision sparked massive protests from loved ones of those who were trapped, and he decided to go ahead with the operation. But remained of Sam Poong still threatened to fall, so cable guys were utilized to keep it up. A fevered search ensued, being covered by major news outlets worldwide. As expected in events like these, there are varying circumstances that people are tested with. We cannot hope to fully understand what these innocent people went through, but be warned that the following descriptions will include traumatic detail. After 16 days, Park Sung Hyung was the last found survivor found in a space that was six feet long, 16 inches wide, and she was found dehydrated and naked. She was 19 years old at the time. Others were crushed under the weight of the building, some drowned by the firefighters trying to put out the flames. It was particularly gruesome, and I'm not going to dwell on it for pretty obvious reasons. Park didn't want to talk about it either. And many of those who did survive say their lives were changed permanently. If anything brought to light the depth of corruption and manipulation in Korea's building industry, it was this event. After the rescue was completed, Lan Chung of Dan Cook University's engineering school led the investigation. Lee Jun and his associates weren't suspected at first. Leaking gas was one of the possibilities given. Remember the gas explosions that happened in Seoul and Taegu a couple of years before? But that was disproven by the source of the fires. The building crushed a number of vehicles starting the flames. If the source was a gas pipe, the damage would have been even greater. North Korea was also implicated in the store's events, but the path of destruction pointed away from any explosives used. It was only when the investigation focused on the structure that they found their answers. As we stated before, the foundation was poor and the ground beneath was unstable. The rubble showed that the mix of low quality cement and concrete mixed with seawater were used for the ceilings and walls. And remember the columns that were taken out to make room for escalators? They were essential in supporting the weight of the entire structure. If Jun and Sam Pung had actually stayed with the original plan or even cut fewer corners than they did, the building would most likely be standing this very day. While being interrogated by Professor Chung, Jun angered many victims by not emphasizing the harm he caused to others, but the financial damage to his company. And can I just say that regardless of what you believe, this particular guy is kind of scummy. He was fine with leaving his own daughter-in-law to die and multiple other innocent civilians. On December 27th, 1995, Lee Jun was found guilty of criminal negligence and received a prison sentence of 10 and a half years, according to the Tribune. Washington Post reported at the time, prosecutors asked for a 20 year prison term for Sam Pung chairman, Lee Jun, 73, and seven years for his son, Lee Han Seng, the company president. They asked for five year sentences for two ward officials who took bribes and lesser sentences for the others. Lee Jun only served seven years as he passed away shortly after. Lee Han Sang also served seven years and opted to leave the industry entirely. The court also sentenced Lee Chung Wu, a former chief administrator of the upscale residential area where the store was located to three years in jail on bribery charges. The panel sentenced 23 others to jail time and fines in connection with the disaster. The families were each compensated about $230,000 and the Sampoon group was no more. The most horrific peacetime event in South Korea is extinct, but it also exists in a vacuum. We could just point the figure at Lee Jun or insert corrupt person here, but in this case, it wouldn't do any good. Honestly, it is as expansive as our recent Hyatt Regency episode. While looking back at the wreckage, Colin Marshall of The Guardian shares yet another horrifying fact. Not only had the public caught on to the pattern, but the investigation of the Sampoon Group and the government officials with which they dealt drew light on the staggering depth and breadth of corruption. Worse still, the thoroughgoing inspection of Seoul's by then proudly characteristic towers found that one out of seven needed rebuilding, four out of five needed major repairs, and just one in 50 could qualify as safe. The dangers of Seoul's construction industry had finally come to light. The problems can't just be pointed at one person and rectifying the costly negligence would not come in one day. With all this, the question remains, 
Given the decades of pain and suffering the small country has suffered, has South Korea learned from the past and moved forward? There is enough evidence to reveal, unfortunately, that it's inconclusive, and here's why. And before we continue on to discuss more modern tragedies and if they have or have not learned from mistakes of the past, let's take a moment for today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Honey, the easy way to save when you're shopping on your phone or computer. And I love shopping online just as much as anyone else, but sometimes I'm pretty terrible at keeping track of promo codes. But now I have Honey to find those precious money-saving codes for me. And Honey is a tool I've been using at this point, I think since 2017 or 2018. Like I have been using Honey for so many, 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 many years. And what's been really great about using Honey for all of these years is I've really gotten used to how Honey works and just how it can save me money. And I've used it for everything from food, clothing, gifts for friends, moving stuff, new furniture, like you name it, I have done it. And Honey is really easy because it's a free shopping tool. It just searches the internet for promo codes and applies the best ones to your cart. So you do the hard work by shopping and they help you at checkout. And now Honey doesn't just work on your desktop, it works on your iPhone too. Just activate it on Safari on your phone and save on the go. So if you don't already have Honey, you could be straight up missing out. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting the show. And I'd never recommend something I don't use. So get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash casket. That's joinhoney.com slash casket. Paying off high interest debt can feel discouraging. You keep making payments, but your interest basically cancels it all out. Well, Upstart can help you pay down that debt to get back to living your life. Upstart is the fast and easy way to pay off your debt with a personal loan, and you can do it all online. Rather than looking at only your credit score, Upstart considers other factors as well, like your current employment, income, and your credit history, all to find you a smarter loan rate. You can check out rates online without impacting your credit score for loans between $1,000 and $50,000. So it doesn't matter if you're trying to consolidate high interest debts, maybe pay off your credit cards, or get some money to start a new project, Upstart is here to help. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com MLM. That's upstart.com MLM. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know that we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit, income, and certain other information provided in your loan application. Upstart.com MLM. At least 16 people watching an outdoor pop concert in South Korea fell to their deaths on Friday when a ventilation grate- they As recently as 2014, down. tragedy struck once again. A report by BBC revealed 16 people were killed and 11 injured during a K-pop concert in Songnam, south of Seoul in South Korea. So what was the cause? The report was that a ventilation grate collapsed and a group of concert goers fell 10 meters or 33 feet into an underground parking area. The crowds had been watching an outdoor performance by the popular Korean girl band 4Minute and other bands. The victims climbed on top of the grate to get a better view of the show. Then there was also the Mana Ocean Resort. The Korean Herald covered the tragedy of the resort collapsing under 50 centimeters of snow. Now, 50 does sound like a lot, but according to investigators, it should not have caused the collapse. Snow is not the fundamental problem. 50 centimeters of snow would only amount to 150 kilograms per square meter. A normal roof should hold at least 300 kilograms. Cho Won Chial, a professor at the School of Civil and Environmental Engineering at Yonsei University said in a radio interview. He said the real problem was in the building's construction, adding that one could tell from a glimpse that its rafters were very weak. Cho also criticized the build of the auditorium, saying that there should have been at least three emergency exits when there was only one. 
And of course, we couldn't look at structural collapses without mentioning the seawall tragedy, which we covered in an episode just a couple months ago. Suffice to say, seawall certainly falls under the structural deficient category. 2014 was the last year of tragedies involving structural failures, and that is until 2021. On June 9, 2021, a five-story building collapsed in Gongju and landed on a bus killing nine people. People were immediately arrested and charged with involuntary manslaughter. Some suspected the demolition was being overseen by a crime ring, but there was no confirmation. This construction incident is still under investigation at the time of recording. And every few years, it unfortunately seems that another tragedy will hit the Korean community. Does that mean that the irresponsible behavior surrounding past incidents have continued? South Korea has a staggeringly bloody past, even after a crippling war. Much of their success is paid in blood and there's the possibility that the price is even steeper. I hope with time, however, that this will change. But with all of that being said, that is where we are going to end today's episode of The Corporate Casket. I hope you learned something new here today. And if you did, make sure that you're liking, following, and subscribing so you can stay up to date on all the latest episodes. And if you wanna connect with me outside of these episodes, make sure you go ahead and go to the description box and click on my Linktree link. It has all of my social media as well as other channels and projects that I'm involved in. Thank you so much for tuning into today's video. Again, I hope you learned something new today and I'll see you in the next one. Bye.